Amen. Thanks, guys. We're going to spend some time looking at the Scriptures together. We do this every week. We make this a central part of our gathering because we believe that the Scripture speaks with the authority and relevance of Jesus Himself. And so if you have a Bible, open it up to John 14. John chapter 14. If you don't have a Bible, there should be some black Bibles nearby. Uh, under the, underneath the chairs, you can turn to page 900 in the black Bibles, page 900. We're in John chapter 14. The series, The End of Jesus' Life, we're calling this The Last Words of Jesus as this ending of John focuses on that last week of his life as he's going to the cross. He's heading for his death and resurrection. And John gives us the most insight into the final moments he shares with his disciples uh, during this time of this Last Supper. And so in John 14, we're focusing in here on the idea of trust through trouble. Trouble will come. Trouble is going to come. Jesus says later in John, in this world you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. And so we are called to trust him in the midst of our troubles. And just as uh, God is gracious to us, he's often gracious to me in letting me experience the need that I'm addressing in the sermon. So this is uh, one of those moments where I'm getting up to preach and just feeling completely spent. We had a camp last week. We were training our kids to do the backyard Bible clubs. Our teenagers lead these clubs. You'll hear about that during the announcements. And yeah, it's very, it's, it's whoop worthy. Uh, it's very exciting. And it's something we're going to do the following week. But we did a training camp. I got to speak at the training camp and preach. And uh, they have me preaching at like 8 p.m., you know, which means coffee late at night, which means I don't sleep well. And I'm with kids all week long. So I am utterly wasted right now. I am like, there's nothing left, right? Like I've got no physical, no spiritual, no emotional reserves left in the tank. So I would ask you to pray for me as I deliver the sermon. But God and his great sense of humor and grace gives us a sermon that's about like, what do you do when you're just at the end of your rope, right? And so I'm going to be sharing to you what, what I need as well, that in the midst of our troubles, we can still trust God, right? So pray for me. Um, one of the things that I was thinking that kind of reminds me of this concept of the trouble that we have in this world is my dog. Uh, we couple, well, it's maybe a year ago, six months ago, we had to put down the brother dog. So we just have a sister dog now. Now she's all by herself. And since brother dog was gone, she's been howling, like howling like crazy, right? Like she howls with other neighborhood dogs. She howls when the sirens go off. She just howls for the fun of it. Um, she didn't used to do that when he was with her. It's this groaning that she's manifesting. And, and we see this talked about in Romans 8. Romans 8 says all of creation is groaning. The dogs are groaning. The earth is groaning. We are groaning. We're waiting for things to be made right. And so I don't know where you are this week. You might, you might be feeling great. You might be at the top of your game. Or you might be like where I am just feeling at the bottom, right? Your tank is empty groaning, needing God to show up just to kind of make it through the next day. We have a God who says, you can trust me in the midst of your groaning. You can trust me in the trouble that you're going through. He's preparing his disciples here for things they can't even imagine yet. Like they're going to face trouble that they don't fully understand. And he's saying, you can trust me. You can trust me. It's going to be okay. So let's read from John 14, verses 1 through 14. Let not your hearts be troubled. Now, just before I read the whole text, I'm just going to make one little grammatical comment, and then we'll read the rest of it. This is don't stay troubled. In the Greek, present tense always means ongoing. So just like in Philippians where he says don't be anxious, he means don't stay anxious. Here he's saying don't stay in that trouble, but trust God. So let not your hearts be troubled or remain troubled or keep being troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. 
In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. And you know the way to where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, Show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do, because I am going to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. I'm going to pray now that God would glorify his name in our time in the scriptures, in his name, that he would show up, that he would help us. Let me pray. God, we pray that you would show us yourself. We thank you that you love us and we know this because of the cross. We pray that you would help us to see your goodness in Jesus, that we would understand your love for us, that your spirit would meet us here in this supernatural moment, that you would open our eyes, that you would help us to trust you in the midst of our trouble. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. So just at the very beginning, we've got this do not be troubled, right? And as I said, the Greek grammar means don't stay troubled. So trouble will come, right? We live in trouble. Jesus says later on in John 16, 33, in this world, you're gonna have trouble, but take heart, I've overcome the world, right? So trouble is a part of the world we live in. The issue is what are we gonna do with it? Are we gonna stay in the trouble? Are we gonna remain in the trouble? Are we gonna keep going with the trouble? Or are we gonna give that to Jesus, as it says in the scriptures elsewhere, cast all your cares on him because he cares for you. So the big idea for this whole section is that we trust him through the troubles, right? Like while we're going through this junk, we trust him and we keep entrusting ourselves to him again and again. We get up the next morning and the trouble's still here and we entrust ourselves to him again. Paul talks about this in Philippians 4, 6, and 7 where he says, don't be anxious. And again, it's that present tense, ongoing aspect. Don't stay anxious but present your request to God. So the big picture here is, are you going to trust God? Am I going to trust God in the midst of our junk, right? Like we all go through junk. We all have stuff we're going through. We all have trouble. We groan. We long. We're going to trust him through that trouble. That's what he's calling us to. Um, now, I use the word trust. He says, believe in God. Believe also in me. I prefer the word trust because I personally, it, it means the same thing as believe, technically speaking. But I think culturally, belief just kind of goes out our head because it's a Christian word right? So I'm just trying to kind of press you a little bit like, okay, you, you all say you believe, right? If you're Southerners or if you're Americans, you're like, I believe that's what it means to be an American or whatever, right? Like we have this kind of cultural faith sometimes, but do you trust him? Do you trust God? That's, that's the question. I think it has a little more of an impact on it. I think we can just kind of lose what belief means sometimes. So I'm interchanging those words. We're going to look at three uh, reasons to trust him. The first is we can trust the Father's house. He says, I'm preparing a place. 
there's a house for you. There's a true home that you're looking forward to. So we can trust the Father's house. Secondly, trust the Son's ability. That's where he's going to talk about being the way, the truth, and the life. He's the way that gets us there, right? So we trust the Son's ability. And then finally, trust in the Spirit's work in our life. The word Spirit doesn't appear in the text, but when you look at it, comparing it to other scriptures, this is the Spirit working in our life will manifest, he says, greater works than these. So that'll be kind of a little weird section there we'll look at at the end. So first of all, we see that we trust the Father's house. We have a house, right? We all long for home. We're groaning and wishing that like we've arrived and none of us have truly arrived. We need to recognize that this can sometimes be deceptive or confusing for us because as Americans, we have great homes. We have nice things. Like the poorest among us here live better than most people in human history, right? We, have, we just have better homes. Like I have a uh, middle class to nice house, right? Most of you have nice things. Even those of you that live in a, a tiny little house in modern America is still a great house, right? It's just better than how most people have lived throughout human history. And so we need to recognize that sometimes that numbs us to our need for our true home. But the scriptures are always reassuring us that God is preparing a true home for us. This is just temporary home. This is not the real home that, that satisfies us. So we know that longing. Have you ever been on a long car trip and, and you start to get home and you just start getting like juiced up like, oh, I finally get to sleep in my own bed, right? Like when we were at the camp, the camp was pretty nice last week, but the sheets were like, I don't know what they were made out of. They were like burlap or something. <laughs> and it was really humid and I had a sunburn. So it was like every time I moved, it was like, <laughs> you know, <laughs> like I could barely roll over in bed and I just felt hot and gross the whole time. Um, and I, it just felt so good to be in my own sheets, right? Like in my own bed. You know that feeling just to be home again? Um, that's, that's what he's addressing here. He's saying, I'm, I'm preparing your true home. Your father has a house for you. And Jesus says, I'm going, I'm going to prepare a place. I'm preparing the rooms. I'm setting up shop for you. I have a little picture here of a family together. And the kid drew a picture of the family holding hands and the house. This is a pretty standard thing the kids draw, right? And I think this is like a taproot to the human soul. We all long for that, right? Like maybe you and I, you know, as middle-aged people stop drawing it, but we still long for it, right? We long for family. We long for home. We long to be in a place where everything is right and we're not there yet. And Jesus is saying, it's, it's going to be difficult. There's going to be trouble. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. Trust in God. Trust also in me. He says, in my father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? He's like, that's what I'm doing. I'm going to set things up for you. I'm preparing a place. Verse three says, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and I will take you to myself that where I am, you may be also. Now, theologians kind of disagree on the order of events with the end of the world, right? Like how things are all going to roll out. Um, and theologians sometimes will even disagree about like the eternal state and like, you know, what it, what it means to be in God's presence, even, even the language. Most of us generally just talk about this as heaven, right? We're going to be in heaven, uses some of that language here. And so I think that's a perfectly fine way to talk about it. But what I want to address is even though theologians will disagree about some of the details, they all agree that this is our future hope, Right? They all agree on the basics. In the end, Jesus wins. And by faith, if we want to be with him, we get to be with him, right? Like he's going to set us up. We get to be at home in heaven and everything will be made right. He'll wipe 
every tear from our eyes. That is our hope. That's what we're looking forward to, our Father's house being set up for us. I hope you see the, the beauty of this, the encouragement that this brings. Jesus says, that's, that's what I'm doing. I'm going away, and this is a parallel to where we live, right? There's a very specific going awayness here with Jesus. He was going to be crucified. The disciples were going to be scattered. They were going to be completely freaked out. Their world was being turned upside down. So he's preparing them for this very specific moment in time, but he's also preparing us for the world we live in, which is a world where we don't, we don't see Jesus face to face, and we're wondering, like, how long, right? Like, how long, Jesus, until this is over, until things are, are made right? And he's saying, hold on, I'm, I'm preparing a place for you. It's going to be okay. So I hope you can find hope in that, find encouragement. I'm preparing a place for you. He says, I will come again, and I will take you to myself, that where I am you may be also, and you know the way to where I am going. So he's telling us to trust in the Father's house, that we can be with him and that everything's going to be all right. There's a couple of verses I share at almost every funeral I ever do that give this kind of comfort, this longing we have. I talked earlier about my, my dog howling and how we all groan and long to be in heaven. And Romans 8 and 2 Corinthians 5 both talk about that groaning and that longing to be with God face to face. Romans 8 says it this way. It says, We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to this present time. Uh, One of our uh, worship interns just had a baby, and one of the things he reported to me is that there was a lot of screaming that took place. Okay? Not just groaning, but screaming, right? Uh, Those of you that have a kid, it uh, it can be tough, right? The pains of childbirth. He says that's what it's like for all of us, right? Like, dudes, you've got to be careful not to compare any pain you've gone through with the pains of childbirth. But here Paul takes that risk and says, in a spiritual sense, just living in a broken world is kind of like that, right? There's something happening. There's a thing being delivered. There's like this good thing in the end, but it hurts. It's painful, and that's where we live. We live in this groaning with all of creation. The dogs are howling. We're groaning. Paul goes on and says, not only so, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit living in us, we groan eagerly as we await, we groan inwardly as we await eagerly for the redemption of our bodies. So our future is secure. We're saved. We're forgiven if we know Jesus. Faith in Christ means, boom, you're forgiven. Your relationship with God is restored. But we still live in these broken bodies and we still live in this broken world. And Paul is saying we're still longing for that part to be finished, the redemption of our physical bodies. He goes on, he says, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. We don't know what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groans that words cannot express. And this is so reassuring to me because as a pastor and as a Bible nerd, as a theologian, I often feel like I have to pray really proper prayers, right? I know just enough theology to get me in trouble and to think I have to like, you know, bargain with God in the right way and use the right theology and use the right words. But here he's saying, In your groaning, you can just share that with God. It's like the model we see in the Psalms. You just groan, how long, O Lord? And we can groan that to the Lord. In your trouble, you can share your trouble with him. Cast all your cares on him, for he cares for you. And here it says the Spirit takes our groaning. And I love that it doesn't say, and the Spirit cleans it up so that God can stand you, right? Because God can't stand your groaning. So he has to clean it up and use proper theology. He just says, no, the, the Spirit groans for you. Like the Spirit meets us in our groaning and brings that groaning to the Lord and makes sense of it for him. He's on your side. He's with you in your groaning. So don't 
Don't wait until you have the right words. Just, just share. Cast your cares on him. Trust him with your troubles. Trust in the Father's house that there's a future that he's preparing for us. 2 Corinthians 5 is a parallel to this, and it says this. We know that if the earthly tent we live in is destroyed, we have a building from God, an eternal house in heaven, not built by human hands. Meanwhile, we groan. We groan. We, we long for that future heavenly house, that heavenly dwelling. And I think here in 2 Corinthians 5, Paul's talking about our, our physical bodies, right? Like this is our, our earth tent, you know? Like this is our house. Basically, we've got this house we carry around with us, our physical bodies. But as Paul says in Romans 8, we're, we're longing for them to be whole because they're not whole. We still live in a world of, of brokenness and tough relationships and misunderstandings and sickness and pain and emotional confusion. We long to be clothed with our heavenly dwelling. Jesus says here, it's coming. He says, hold on, it's coming. That's the reassurance that we can trust him because he was preparing a place for us, that all of world history is going to be wrapped up in this uh, making right of everything that has hurt us. Everything that we groan for is going to be fulfilled in our Father's house. The next thing we see is that we can trust the Son's ability. We can trust the Son's ability. So Jesus says he's the mechanism by which we, we make it to the Father's house, right? Like he's going there to prepare the place, so he's doing the work for us. And he is the one that says he's the way. He's the road to get there. Uh, look in the text at verse 5. We'll read verses 5 through 9 here. He says in verse 5, Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you're going. How can we know the way? So in verse 4, Jesus is like, and by the way, you know the way to get to the Father's house. You know how to get to the Father's house. Thomas is like, no, uh, no, no, you never gave us that map, right? Like, where's the map? We don't, we don't know how to get to the Father's house. And they're a little panicky here. How can we know the way? Verse 6, Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Jesus says, you're not, you're not waiting for a map. You just need to know me. Do you know Jesus? Because he's, he's the actual way. That could be translated road. He, he's the road. He's the bridge. He's the car that's going to get you there. He's going to take you there, which separates Christianity from all world religions, from all philosophies, from faith in self and science. Everything else says like, I got to figure out the map and I'll get myself there. I got to find the keys. I got to build the car. Jesus says, he's the car. He says, he's the one that's going to transport us there. We just need to know him, and he'll get us there. That's, that's hugely different. He goes on and interacts with Philip. So Thomas asked him a question. We don't know the way. He says, I am the way. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and that's enough for us. Jesus said to him, have I been with you so long, and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Repeatedly throughout the Gospel of John, Jesus is proclaiming this incredible oneness between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. If we've seen Jesus, we've seen the Father. If we want to know God, the invisible God, we see him through Jesus. Now, there's a famous way of portraying that Jesus is the one with the ability to get us there, that we're trusting in the Son's ability, and it's, uh, it's sometimes called the bridge illustration. You might have heard of this before, but I, I want you to see this. This is kind of a like super basic introduction to Christianity, but it's so important and so basic, we all need to know this. 
So sometimes it's called one verse evangelism, like sharing the good news evangelism with one verse. Romans 6.23 says there's basically two ways that humans go. It says the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. There's two ways that we can live. We can live according to wage. Do you want to punch a time clock with your human existence and say, I've done my stuff. Here you go, God, you owe me. The Bible says what we're owed, if we're living by the wage system, if we're punching a time clock spiritually, what we're owed is then death and separation from God. You can argue about whether you think that's fair or not, but that's the reality. And he says, if we're trying to make it on our own, we're not going to make it. We're not going to be able to find the map. We're not going to be able to have a car that can drive that far. And so the bridge illustration says Jesus, the cross, then makes the bridge. He's the way. He's the road. He's the stairway to heaven. We can't build our own stairway to heaven. Jesus is the one that comes down to us. And so in this bridge illustration, they separate the the main ideas of the verses. On one side, you've got the wages of sin is death. On the other side, you've got a free gift. That free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. So we either come to God saying, I've earned this, you owe me. Or we come to God saying, I can't do it. Will you help me? Will you take me? I need you. The open hands, the empty hands of faith. I want to ask you to think about where you are on that perspective. Where, where are you on that map? Are you trusting in the way, the truth, and the life? Or are you trusting in yourself? And what's really deceptive is I think we kind of intuitively know when we're sinning in kind of culturally understandable ways, we're rebelling against the laws of God, we kind of know that we're walking away from God, right? And in a sense, that is a way of trusting in self, right? The wages of sin are, I can save myself by pursuing pleasure. I can save myself by earning my way to, we don't call it the Father's house, but when you say, I'd rather have pleasure than have God's law, you're saying, Pleasure is the Father's house, right? Like, that's the ultimate security for me. I'm going to pursue that, and that's how I'll make my bed. That's how I'll make my house. That's how I'll find my best life now. We're pursuing pleasure and making everything okay. Jesus says, no, hold on. You're not going to get your best life now. Hold on, and we're going to get that later, and I will get you there. But we keep saying, no, no, I want to do it on my own. My question is, is that you? Are you saying, no, I don't don't trust him. I, I trust myself to be able to figure this out. If that's where you are, man, I, I love you. I'm glad you're here. I just want to plead with you that it's, that it's not going to end well. You can't get yourself there, but Jesus promises that he can. And all you have to do is trust him. Now, what's, what's really deceptive is when those of us that are religious think, yeah, I'm not like him, so I'm getting myself there, right? That's the real danger, is we think, yeah, I'm a good guy. I'm keeping God's law. We looked at this a little bit last week with Peter who said, Lord, I will do whatever it takes. I will follow you. I will die for you. And Peter in last week's story at the end of chapter 13 represented those of us that are religious, those of us Bible Belt people that are like, I can be good enough. I can earn the wages of righteousness. But Romans 6.23 says, no, you can't. Jesus is the way, not, not your self-righteousness. Now, God wants us to obey, but and Jesus is going to get into this next week. We're going to look at it. To love him is to obey him, but we receive his love before we obey him. You receive his love. You're trusting in him to get you there, and then he changes your heart, and he changes your mind, so you want to obey him. So we need to make sure we're not trying to earn the wages of building that roadmap and creating our own way to get there, but we're trusting with open, empty hands of faith that Jesus can get us there. That's what he's calling us to, because he's the way and the truth and the life. That's what it means to trust 
in the Son's ability. I want you to be thinking about where you are on that map. Are you just trusting in Jesus? Or are you thinking you can get yourself somewhere by pleasure or by religious law-keeping, being good? Where, where are you? What are you doing? Are you trusting him? Or are you trying to get yourself there on your own? That's the big question. And for those of us that are more clear about that, I would encourage you to be able to explain this to others, to learn this. You can go online and, and like look at videos on how to share the gospel, one verse evangelism, how to just make that basic explanation from Romans 6.23 because we've got a world that's, that's dying to know this. We've got a world that's, that's struggling and have serious spiritual questions. More and more our culture is shifting to where it's just like ridiculous to go to church. There's less and less common knowledge of the grace of God and the provision that we have in Jesus. More and more than ever, we're needed as God's people to share the hope that we have in Jesus with others. And that brings us to this last section that we are to trust the Spirit's power. And I said this before, the word Spirit doesn't really appear in these few verses, but Jesus is gonna pick that theme up later on in chapter 14, so it kind of becomes clear that that's what he's talking about here. He's talking about what it means to walk by the Spirit. Uh, One of the ways to think about Jesus is we know he is God, but we also know he is man. And so he is the example to us of what it means to be a perfect man. So we've talked a lot about this, the example of trouble, right? I talked to you about how we see in Jesus's life, he expresses real trouble, he expresses real emotion, he expresses real issues emotionally, and he's an example for us. He's also an example of walking by the Spirit. He's an example for what does it look like for a human to absolutely trust the Father? And he gives us that example in the way that he lives. So let's read here verses 10 through 14. Starting in verse 10, it says, Do you not believe that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. He's coming back around to this idea of works. Believe me that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. So throughout John, Jesus has been referencing these great works of the Father that he's doing and that they're totally on the same page. Repeatedly in the Gospel of John, we, we hear that Jesus is one with the Father. This idea is sometimes reflected as the Trinity, that God is one God and three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And he's totally one with the Father. He does a work that the Father does. And if you want to see the work of the Father, you look at the work of the Son. You see that expressed through his life. And what we understand from John chapter 5 is that there are serious works that Jesus has come to do. Now, some of those include like healing people and doing miraculous things like that. Throughout the scriptures, that helps us to know that we can trust Jesus and trust the apostles and trust the prophets, that they do these miracles. And I'm not going to say that miracles don't happen today. I believe God can do whatever he wants to do. And I think it's completely appropriate and right that Christians would pray and expect God to do miraculous things. But he's going to talk about doing greater works. And some Christians will describe the greater works as us in today's world, as Christians who walk with Jesus, doing all kinds of flashy miracles of healing and sign gifts and speaking in tongues. I think God can do that stuff if he wants to, but that's not the greater works. John explicitly defines the greater works. In a sense, those kind of miraculous displays are the lesser works. The greater work is very clear from the Gospel of John, and that is the death and resurrection of the Son. But he's talking here in context of how do you know I'm preparing a place where I'm going with the Father? Like his death and resurrection is what is going to turn this wheel and make all of this happen. 
His death and resurrection is the greater work. And in John 5, he explicitly says the greater work is raising us from the dead. That's the ultimate work. And so I think later on here, he's going to talk about we're going to do these works. And I'm saying throughout John, that's by the power of the Spirit, we're going to do these works. But the works are not miracles and you know, healings and all that. The, the, the greatest work is us sharing more of Jesus with the world. That's the greatest work. Look at this and as we move on. So I read 10 and 11 already. It says, believe in the works themselves. Now look at verse 12. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do and greater works than these will he do because I'm going to the Father. He's like, because I'm going to the Father, because I'm doing this journey, because the climax of the story is coming and my death and resurrection and reign from heaven is happening, you will do greater works also. John 5 explicitly says, go back and read it, the greater works are Jesus calling people up from the grave, calling people from spiritual death. We get to be a part of that. That's why we're here. And I fully believe that God wants us to participate in, in the, the creation mandates, right? Like when God created Adam and Eve, he's like, go have kids, plant trees, build cities, do life. We're supposed to do those things, right? It's not like evangelism only and we never change diapers or cook meals, right? Like we live normal life, but this is the ultimate reason we're left here is we're sharing the truth of the gospel with others, the greater work of resurrection in Christ. That's what he's called us to. You're going to do greater works than I do. Greater works than these will he do because I'm going to the Father. Verse 13, whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. So here he's not saying, if you ask and say in Jesus' name, then you'll get the house you want, right? Like if you say in Jesus' name, then you'll magically, like by magical incantation, get the car you want. No, he's, he's talking about the greater works. People that walk by the Spirit, people that obey Jesus are going to do the greater works. What are the greater works? John is really clear in John 5. He says the greater works are the resurrection from the dead. He's calling people to life. He's making it very clear, giving spiritual life to people. That's the great work. So that's the primary great work. I think the secondary work in the New Testament perspective is the spiritual transformation that's ongoing of us walking by the Spirit and manifesting the fruit of the Spirit, right? That we would actually love people and serve people and have joy and be kind and be patient. That's, those are the miracles we should be shooting for. And so he's daring us to walk by the Spirit and display these greater works, sharing the hope of the gospel and pray in Jesus' name, in the name of our emperor, that his empire would be spread. That's what it means to pray in his name. I've recommended this one book on prayer many times. It's called A Praying Life. It's a fantastic book. It's my favorite book on prayer. But on this subject, I think a book that's a little better, that's helpful to understand, it kind of picks apart all the hard passages on prayer. It's a book called Praying Backwards by Brian Chappell. Praying Backwards by Brian Chappell. He uses the phrase praying backwards because he says as Christians in Christian culture, we have this habit of praying and then saying at the end, in Jesus' name, amen, right? How many of you heard that? I, I pray it all the time. There's nothing wrong with it, right? But he says we want to pray backwards, meaning we want to start in Jesus' name. And again, he's not saying like saying the words like a magic formula. What he means is like, are you praying with the emperor in mind? Are you praying with the king of the universe in mind? Like what is he doing in your world? How is he going to extend his glory? How is he raising people from spiritual death in your circles of influence? 
And are you praying in his name that that would take place? Now, to be clear, that's not the only way to pray, right? That's just what he's talking about here. We talked about it last week, and I've talked about it a bunch. Jesus gives a good model prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane where he says, if there's any other way, take this cup from me, but not my will, your will be done. That's both kinds of prayers, right? We started at the beginning with you are longing for heaven. You're longing for home, and you can share that with God. You can groan, and the Spirit will take your groanings and share that with you. You can pray those prayers. God, I'm desperate. You can even pray, God, I need a new house, whatever it is. But here, when he says, ask whatever you wish in my name and I will do it, he's talking about his will being extended, spreading his empire, raising more people from spiritual death. Will you pray those prayers? Will you walk in supernatural dependence on the Holy Spirit? He's saying that's, that's what this looks like. That's what the, the greater works are. And so I have a picture here that I think further details this. This is a, a dad feeding breakfast to his kids. Um, dad feeding breakfast to his kids. Dads, I don't know how many of you do this, but it's a great joy to feed your kids. Um, one of the joys of having kids come home when they've been away is seeing them in, enjoy being at our table again, right? Enjoying the meal. They're not eating ramen noodles anymore, but they're eating mom's good, good cooking. Um, Jesus uses this illustration here when he's talking about walking with the Spirit and praying in Jesus' name. There's a parallel in Luke 11. It's a parallel in Luke 11 where Jesus says this, I tell you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives and the one who seeks finds and to the one who knocks it will be opened. We have to pause there for a minute. Is he talking about giving you whatever you want, whatever you can imagine, making you richer than you already are? I don't think so. I think again it's parallel to what he's saying in John. He's talking about extending his empire. He's talking about bringing resurrection life to other people who are desperate and needy, who are hurting. Do you want to extend that? Do you want to extend his name and his power? He goes on, Jesus says in Luke 11, knock and it will be opened. Now what father among you, if his son asks for fish, will give him instead of a fish a snake? If your son's hungry, dad, can we go to Long John Silver's? No, but I'll give you a rattlesnake, right? Jesus is like, that's not what dads do. Or if he asks for an egg, we'll give him a scorpion. This is the best part. Jesus says, If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask them? Jesus is like simultaneously commending us as earthly fathers and punching us in the gut, right? Like, yeah, you earthly dads, you know how to give good things to your kids, even though you are completely evil and bankrupt, right? saying how much more your heavenly father he loves you even more than any earthly father that's willing to make pancakes on saturday morning and what's he going to give you again he's going to give you his spirit that's what he's saying if you ask he will give he will give you his spirit so you can manifest the fruit of the spirit love joy peace patience kindness gentleness self-control you can walk in that same supernatural power the greater works than these that jesus is talking about is walking by the spirit loving people and sharing the hope we have of the resurrection. He says, ask in my name and I'll give it to you. He's, he's daring us. He's daring us to, to go on the offense, right? This is a broken world. We started at the beginning with, we're groaning, we're longing, we want our Father's house, we want to get home. And he's saying, not yet, it's not time yet, I've left you here for fruitful labor. That's the phrase Paul uses in Philippians 1. Paul's like, of course, I'd rather be in heaven and then all my problems are over, but God's left me here for fruitful labor. 
He's left me here not to have my best life now, but to share the hope I have of my best life in the future of being in my father's house. That's what I'm looking forward to. The mechanism to get me there is the son himself, his death and resurrection. And the spirit is gonna empower me and empower you to walk every day loving those around us and sharing that message of hope that we have with the world. My prayer for you and prayer for me is that we would be praying right now, Lord, show me who I need to talk to. Show me how I need to show this love. Lord, in Jesus' name, show me how I can extend your empire, your rule, the greater works of resurrection from spiritual death. That's, that's what he's calling us to here. Let me pray for us. Father, we, we thank you. And we're amazed by what you offer us. We're amazed that we get to be a part of what you're doing in the world. We're embarrassed by the ways we walk off course and we make it all about us. But we're grateful that like Peter, who denied you three times, you restore us and you invite us back onto your team. You invite us as your children to sit at your table and you invite us to invite all our friends to come and join the banquet. So God, thank you for the grace you offer us. Thank you for the grace you give us in Christ. Help us to believe that you are doing these greater works in our life, waking us from death to life, and in our friends' lives. Use us, we pray, in Jesus' name. Amen.